0: I'd rather have control over my assets. And if I'm going to win, it's because of me. If I'm going to lose, it's because of me. You know, I can take 100% ownership over it. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson.
1: Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number one hundred and thirty-five. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Doing great, man. How you doing? Doing good. Hanging in there. Hanging in there. Everything's going well with us. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the show. We just had a, a in- interview with someone that's coming out with a new book. So there's still there's still things moving along here, right?
2: Yeah, totally. I think for the most part here in Texas, we're getting back to some sort of normal took my kids to the pool today for the first time this summer or i guess spring summer whatever you want to call it for us it's already summer when it's 90 degrees but uh that was nice and refreshing uh, to take them there we went to private pool a couple different times over the last month but this was you know a neighborhood more public pool so getting ready to to kind of get back to some normal and i think you know continue to hopefully slow the spread and and uh you know I, i think we're gonna have some favorable outcomes here in the near future.
1: You guys are starting to get more cases though in, in Texas, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a, some, some uptick, uh, a little bit in some areas, but across, you know, we've had some counties that haven't had a new case in several weeks now. So
1: hmm. awesome. Awesome. So another thing that's been moving, we're recording this May 20th here. So another thing that's been moving the last couple of days is, is the stock market, right? Yeah. S and P this week is, a, a six percent and it's only like eleven percent or so off the high from feb from end of February and the Nasdaq's only off I think like four and a half percent from its its all time high on February twentieth. So four percent pretty crazy to be down. Only 4% right now with everything that's going on, right?
2: Yeah. You know, we were talking a little bit before the show about the situation. We've got all these unemployed workers right now. The government's pumped several trillion dollars into the economy now. And, you know, by the way, side note, today is National Millionaire's Day. So congrats to all those millionaires out there. And the crux of our show, we're recording this on May 20th, which is National Millionaire's Day. But I think the markets responded to some of the positive news that they that the market is hopeful that one, either there's a vaccine or two, that some of these companies that, that may have been hit the hardest are going to be able to kind of, you know, make a V shape recovery. You and I are, are in the boat that we think that it might be a little bit harder for all these people to go back to work immediately. And maybe even some of their jobs may not even ever come back.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally interesting, but then I think people find ways to, To find to make something else happen, right? I think that's what you mentioned last week on the show is that people find opportunities, and you know, it's just it's interesting when you look at the market because some stocks have totally thrived, right? You got Amazon and some of the healthcare stocks. I mean, some of the healthcare stocks are either up or haven't moved, and then you have stocks, obviously, like the travel industry and cruises that have gotten crushed. But if you look at Amazon, it's pretty interesting. So I have a six month chart pulled up. So they reached their high previous high, I think, in February. Uh, February twentieth ish, right? Then they dropped, so they dropped about twenty one percent, twenty two percent on March twelfth or so was their low, or give or take. I'm just kind of using rough numbers here. And since then, since their low, they're up forty percent. So wow. since since their recent high in February, they're up sixteen percent. So if you bought Amazon mid March, you're up forty something percent. So pretty pretty amazing that how they've been able to weather it, right? I mean, obviously. It depends on the company, but I don't know. Pretty pretty interesting right now to see and Facebook spiking right now and everything. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I think normalcy is coming back maybe slowly, but surely.
2: Yeah. I think it poses the question, how How do you go and invest in, in times like this? Do you try to pick those stocks that are maybe the stay-at-home stocks and, and ride those out for the long time? Do you stick with the FANG stocks that have shown that they can have their workforce go home and continue to produce for the most part, uh, with maybe the exception of a couple that have you know significant exposure overseas. You know, I, I don't have the answer. I think everybody needs to decide that for themselves. I personally haven't been playing the market, but we've, you and I have both bought as it was declining uh, to some degree. I know you bought a lot more in, in certain stocks than I did, but the interesting thing is too. You know, I see Southwest. Uh, report today that all of a sudden they're adding a bunch more flights back in June because the demand spiked so fast.
1: Oh, interesting! I didn't see that.
2: Yeah, so I didn't see that. You know, I think didn't you buy some of the some of the airline or travel? I bought stocks? some
1: airlines, and I'm up in I. So I bought. It's so funny. right? I bought it March 23rd or so, which was the low. Right. The problem is, I bought airlines. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they among other things right so some of the stuff is done really well so on uh I'm trying to just open it up here so on airlines i'm still down on delta and united but i'm up on southwest and i'm up in my airline fund my biggest winner is el dorado resorts that i bought at the end of march and that's up 139% since i bought it wow so any reason why that, oh i don't know I, I think maybe gambling's coming back or they they're, they're buying caesar's entertainment so i, I think Maybe just that news made it spike initially, but obviously, just dumb luck here. I'm no I'm no stock trader, but pretty interesting. So, anyway, speaking of risk, a little bit right. We've got a new sponsor for the show, RIMS. So we're appreciative to them sponsoring this week's episode. They're a global organization dedicated to the profession of risk management for nearly 60 years. RIMS has delivered the latest strategies and resources that allow risk professionals to grow, innovate, and succeed in any business. RIMS works with industry leaders to produce content and online training that business professionals turn to. Topics include business continuity, cyber risk, risk management techniques, the fundamentals of insurance, and more. There is also a private members-only site where people can discuss sensitive issues and get honest answers. Members have been leaning on each other as well to navigate this global pandemic. If you're concerned about the safety of your employees and the sustainability of your organization and business, you need the resources and connections RIMS provide. Learn more at go.rims.org/unveiled. Again, that's go.rims—that's r-i-m-s.org/unveiled to learn more, and you can save 25% of off of a year-long membership. So, thanks again to RIMS for sponsoring this week's episode. We'd love to share your financial millionaire story. So if you're a millionaire or close to becoming a millionaire, we're always looking for great everyday millionaires and terrific guests. And we're appreciative to those who have already come on the show and and to everybody who listens. And and obviously, we've been able to learn from so many of our millionaires, so we're appreciative to them. Our goal is obviously to get a broad guest of millionaires. So if you're interested, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Also, we may have some uh, multifamily investment opportunities coming up. So if you're interested – and buying what we feel is a good price right now, feel free to reach out to us again. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We appreciate everybody tuning into the podcast week after week. Thanks for listening. Even during this troubled time, hopefully, we provide just a bit of light to your schedule and repertoire. And so, thanks again for listening. On today's show, we have Tim. Tim has a high net worth around $30 million. He's primarily invested in real estate. So we really dive into his mindset, how he's built up team, how he's been able to build up his real estate portfolio and some of the interesting stories there. So great, interesting interview with Tim. And so without any further delay, let's get right into the interview with him.
2: Tim, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now?
0: Yeah. Well, first, I appreciate you guys having me. Clark, Joe, appreciate all the all the value you guys bring and i um, excited to be here. So, um, my my background's in real estate. I'm a real estate guy. I, I was going through college when the market was going crazy back in 03 to 07. And um, I saw people, anybody who had a breath could, could make money in real estate, right? And I was a money motivated kid back then and decided I want to get into real estate. And so after college um in 2007 i moved out to uh new york city i'm from cleveland ohio originally moved out to new york because my brother was living there and he's like hey man come and live with me and I, i thought you got involved in real estate by becoming a real estate agent so i went and got my real estate license and um Uh, took a job working for a a brokerage firm but a commercial brokerage firm and they essentially negotiated leases and uh did some investment and apartment building sales and and uh uh, for all these landlords in in manhattan and i remember like i'm a new kid on the block right so they give me all the junk listings like these little retail listings and office listings like on side streets and i took this one in in greenwich village and um small little 400 square feet space Uh, In Grunge Village. And uh, I remember negotiating a lease on that. It took me about eight months to negotiate the first lease on it and actually close a deal. And on that, it was 400 square feet. We signed a lease for $10,000 per month with a 4% annual increase over a 12-year lease term. And you know i'm i'm a I'm a numbers kit right, and so I, I started running the numbers on this thing and i I'm, I'm realizing this landlord over the next twelve years is going to make almost two million dollars for doing something at one point in time and this is one of eight retail spaces, and this is the smallest retail space, and they got fifteen stories of apartments above it and I quickly realized I'm on the wrong side of the coin I need to be owning real estate instead of brokering real estate and so i um you know started going through this this whole Analysis paralysis phase of just trying to study everything, learn as much as I possibly can, and that's right when the economy started started dipping. So 08, 09 come. Thankfully, I didn't get in real estate before the market shifted. Um, not from an ownership standpoint, anyways. But as soon as it dipped, I realized like there's some real good deals out here. And uh, it was kind of weird though because I I was all excited about getting into real estate, and and meanwhile. Everybody's like, run, right? Like get out of real estate. I was like, I just showed up to the party. What do you guys want from me? And so I uh, uh, didn't have any money. I'm 23 years old at the time in early 2009. And I decide that I want to buy a house. And I ended up buying. I moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, which is where I split my time between Cleveland and Charleston now. And when I was down in Charleston, South Carolina, I found the cheapest house on the MLS and it was, it was a dump man in a really rough neighborhood, but it was the cheapest house on the entire MLS. And, uh, it was 25 grand. That was awesome. The only issue was I didn't have 25 grand at the time. And, um, but I had this credit card. And so I called up my credit card company, asked them to increase my limit. I asked them for a hundred thousand dollar limit increase. And they said, absolutely not. Uh, But they gave me 15 grand. And so I I made an offer on that property, went back and forth, got it for $14,000 and uh, put all the sweat equity in myself, did all the work and uh, ended up selling it to one of the neighbors. And I made $13,000 in about a hundred days. First deal, worst economy I've ever seen and uh, without knowing what the heck I'm doing. And I was hooked. And so I've just been doing real estate ever since. Got it a whole different whole bunch of different aspects of it. Wholesaling, uh, the retail flips that you see kind of like on HGTV, uh, the turnkey space where we'd buy and renovate a single family house and then sell it with management in place to a white collar professional, open up a management company. And, uh, then I got into apartment buildings and I started focusing on apartments about my first one, about seven, seven and a half years ago, and really been focused on apartments for the past four years. And, um, over the past four and a half years, I've grown my portfolio, um, and that's that's 97% of my portfolio is apartments now. I have a little bit of other stuff, but 97% is apartment buildings, and I'm currently at a little over 3,700 apartment units. Uh, it's about a $300 million portfolio value, and I only owe about 180 on it. So uh, we're at a pretty good basis on the, on the portfolio. We have a lot of equity built up and, um, and we, we have a very specific buying criteria and business model of, of, uh, you know, I, I saw everybody who made a lot of money and people who lost a lot of money in the last market cycle. And my entire business model has been modeled off of that, uh, to ensure we can ride out any sort of, uh, market shifts or anything else that occurs because as we know, real estate's cyclical and, uh, it's going to happen again. Wow.
2: That was an awesome story. I want to get into some of the details and stuff, but <laughs> what what's your net worth sitting at today? Uh a little over thirty million. And, and so you said ninety seven percent of that is is basically in multifamily real estate.
0: Yes. Yeah. And the other three percent is in other sorts of real estate. You know, I got a couple hundred thousand dollars sitting in a bank account for uh you know, IRA and 401k type stuff. But other than that, everything is, uh, is either in cash or in real estate. And so, um, it's just, I, I like real estate, you know, I know it, I can, it's predictable for me. I can control it. I, I'm not a stock guy. I just, I, there's something that doesn't sit well with me with investing in a, in a stock where I can't control it. I can't control if, you know, Volkswagen's cheating or or, I think it was Volkswagen is cheating emissions tests, right? Or if Elon Musk smokes a joint on public television and uh, the stock drops by 15%, like that's, that's not something that I messed up on. I just, I'd rather have control over my assets. And if I'm going to win, it's because of me. If I'm going to lose, it's because of me, you know, I can take a hundred ownership over it. Totally. So you said you've got a little bit in, in IRA. Is that invested in the market or is that self-directed into real estate as well? that's nah, it's in the market. It's kind of just set it and forget it. Put it in the market. I'm I'm 34 years old as we're talking today, and um, so there's some time on my side. I don't know if that's the right mindset because I know that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in the in the traditional finance realm. But you know, I I set up an IRA, set up a 401k, and just been contributing it to it. And it's just one of those set it and forget it. And hopefully it's there. And I got a bunch of money in there 20 30 years from now. But I would never bank on that. I I bank on my real estate. And although I'm I'm all in on real estate i I'm, I'm diversified across 50 different properties right i have Apartment buildings all over the country, and we were talking before we we started recording here. Is I have stuff in multiple states in the Midwest, all over the Southeast, all over the South, and a little bit in the Southwest. And um, so I'm diver- I'm diversified ac- across different buildings, different markets, different sizes, different uh, classes. Some are some are new constructions. Some are renovated A-class buildings. Some of them are renovated B-class buildings. And um, it just kind of I'm diversified in that regard and I buy for cash flow right I don't buy anything for speculation I don't hope that appreciation is going to occur I buy a lot of value add apartment buildings meaning they're physically distressed or managerially distressed and then we we create appreciation we force the appreciation up um by putting in that sweat equity by doing that that value add improvements of renovating the property putting better management better tenants in place and then uh and then letting it cash flow
1: So Tim, you mentioned a couple minutes ago or 30 seconds ago or something, you have a unique uh, strategy, right? That you've seen people succeed, you've seen people fail, and and therefore you've kind of taken pieces that you've learned from them and applied it to yourself. So is that what your strategy is? What you were just saying is it just unique for unique for cash flow? Is there what are you looking for yeah. specifically?
0: Yeah, great, great question. And uh, I, you know the, the real thing is how do you mitigate risk, right? When you become a millionaire and you you increase your net worth, especially when you don't come from money, um, you're almost afraid to lose it, right? And so one of the the very Real things I focus my my time on now is not only increasing my net worth, but also increasing that safety net and reducing the liability and the risk that comes with it. So, if a market cycle does occur, if uh, a economy does shift, if we go into political uncertainty or economic uncertainty or turmoil of some sort, like what what does that look like? And you know, I, I remember when I was first involved in real estate before I started investing, you know, fifteen years ago, I. I was was meeting these people and I I talked to people in 07 and 08 and they're like yeah I was worth uh, 65 million dollars before the market shifted and I lost everything and I remember thinking to myself Ooh. like how the heck is that possible how are you worth 65 million dollars and, and you have zero a year, two years later, like, how was, how is that possible? And, and by, by sitting, and then I met other people who were able to ride out the storm and not only were they able to, uh, survive, but they were able to thrive and they bought all this real estate for pennies on the dollar when the market shifted. And I'm like, how, what was the difference between those two stories? You know, and sitting back and looking at it, um, uh, there were a few key points. One is. Uh, there were a lot of people who bought at a retail price, hoping that tomorrow the value would go up. And then when it didn't go up, and it actually went down, they 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 had negative value in their property. So that's number one. Never buy retail. Always buy wholesale. I always buy, and I'm all into one of my apartment buildings for usually 60 to 65 percent of that stabilized or after repair value. So that way, the market would have to shift by 35 or 40 percent. For me to just be able to break even, you know, so I have a lot of different options if that's the case. So number one, always buy wholesale, never, ever buy retail. And that's like a lot of people say, location, location, location is the number one rule to real estate. No wholesale, wholesale, wholesale is the number. I've, I've made a lot of money in really rough areas because I always bought at a wholesale price. Uh, that's number one. Number two was uh, never speculate on appreciation. Always create appreciation. You know, again, going back to that, uh, that. Earlier example is they buy at a retail price and hope that the value would go up. I would never want to hope for, for any of that stuff. I'm going to take control of that. And I'm going to create the appreciation by putting in some sweat equity. And so by renovating the units and uh, bumping up rental rates and reducing expenses by putting LED lights in and low flow toilet uh, toilets and shower heads and like doing things like that where um, where you could you can predictably increase the value of a commercial real estate uh, property to me, it's, you're not gambling, right? You're more, uh, uh, refining the process kind of a thing. And it's very predictable of what your returns can look like. So that's number two, never speculate, only create appreciation. And then, uh, another one would be always buy for cash flow, And that kind of, they all kind of, um, fall in line with each other, but the people who bought for development purposes, and again, going back to the speculation piece, I, I, you know, they're buying land. They're going to build it all out and sell these houses and they think they can sell it for $400,000 a house. And then the market shifts and they can't sell it for that. And they're in, in to the, uh, the land and the, the houses for more than that. Like that's when people lose. If they were buying for cash flow, if they were buying cash flowing assets at a low enough basis, meaning a wholesale price, then they could have rode, road and out, ridden out any sort of storm that occurred and. Maybe they – on paper, the values went down for those people who who bought apartment buildings and who bought cash-flowing properties. And on paper, the value came down a little bit. Maybe it wouldn't appraise, but they still had cash flow even if the value's went to zero that doesn't really matter if you have somebody renting from you who's paying enough in rent that covers all of your operating expenses for that property and it covers your debt service your mortgage on that property and puts cash in your pocket on a monthly basis if that's if that's occurring there's always value to that right even if the value on paper goes to zero it doesn't matter because there's always value to that and you know eventually that that the value will come back and you know i, I remember Early on in, in real estate, I always knew – like I was pretty bad at real estate for the first seven years I was investing, right? I got pretty good about four years ago, um, but I was pretty bad initially. Uh, but I always knew that it would work. I always knew that it would play out. I always knew that – I mean you think about it since the beginning of of civilization – Wealth has always been measured in land ownership, right? The landowners, the landlords, the those are the people who made the laws. Those are the people who had status. Those are the people who created the tax laws, right? And um, they were the ones who who had all the wealth. And I always knew that real estate would work. I just knew it was a matter of time. You know, it, was, it goes back to the whole maxim of don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and, and wait. Just make sure you're buying it at a wholesale price, never speculate, <laughs> and always buy for cash flow. So, so many directions we can take this. I kind of want to talk about the wholesale
1: price. How do you find your deals, especially now, right, in a market where there's so much capital and people are saying, oh, you know, prices are high, cap rates are down, Mm -hmm. right? I I, I can't find something. I assume you're buying off market, you know, obviously. How do you find those? Do you do mailers? How would you suggest to somebody who's, you know, maybe not as big as you or somebody who's looking to buy their first property? How would they go about finding an opportunity like that?
0: Yeah. Great question. I, um, and, and again, I come from the residential realm, so I've never taken a class on commercial real estate. I've never read a book on commercial real estate. I, um, it's all been through the the school of hard knocks, right? I, I do something, I mess it up and I learn from my mistake and I, and I don't do that mistake again. And you get better and better and more refined over time. And so, but, be, but because I've never been through a course and I've never, uh, you know, read a book on traditional syndication or any of these things, I've always just Um, taking the simple strategies that I used in buying and flipping houses, and I've just taken those same processes and put them into apartment buildings. And so my goal is to be all in for no more than 65% of that after repair value. Now, how do you do that? One is you got to buy wholesale and two, you have to force appreciation. You have to create the appreciation. So those two elements are, are critical in all the deals that I do, how do you find off market deals when the market's as hot as it is? Like I just read an article that's $2.1 trillion on the sidelines waiting to be deployed into alternative mm. assets, right? Waiting to de- be deployed into fixed assets and taken out of the market and put onto, uh, into things like real estate. And, uh, when that's the case that, that naturally values increase, right? Cap rates are compressed and, um, you gotta be very creative on how you're finding deals. What I do believe, though, is that there are—I don't know if you, ever, you guys have ever read *Acres of Diamonds* by—I think Cromwell is—is is the guy who wrote it, or it was a, a speech or something that he gave a hundred years ago. And the premise is that you know this guy who's got this farm in uh, uh, somewhere in the the Middle East, somewhere Mesopotamia back in the back in uh, biblical times, uh, had this farm and. You know he's struggling to to make ends meet, just keeping his head above water, and he's trying to you know do more for his family, like we all are, right? And he's in the market one day and talks to some uh, merchant who's traveled from Europe, and the merchant's like, "Well, you know, they're finding all these diamond mines and all these things in in the the Alps, and you should go to the Alps and go and mine for diamonds." And so this guy goes back he, and he sells his his farm, and he packs up his wife and his kid, and they they travel over to Europe, and it's kid gets like like terminally ill and his wife you know he spends all his money and his wife leaves him and he he, he's you know wearing rags and and stumbles back to like just completely depressed and and uh loses all of his money loses his family loses everything stumbles back to his hometown and finds out that the the man that he sold his farm to was was digging and found the largest diamond mine in history underneath his his own property and the moral of the story is that there's acres of diamonds in your own backyard, right? And although the market is as hot as it is right now, everything that I buy is meets that buying criteria. Yeah you, know, you just have to sort and sift through more and more deals. And so we we have multiple strategies on finding off-market opportunities. And, uh, one is direct mail, right? So we do mailers and we build those relationships. Two is we dial for dollars, meaning we pick up the phone and we call for rent by owner signs and for rent by owner listings online and say, Hey, we're not interested in in renting, We're interested in buying your apartment building. Do you have any interest in selling? We're building relationships with management companies and uh, exterminating companies and laundromat or uh, uh, coin operated laundry uh, servicing companies and landscapers and all these people who are working with commercial property owners at all times. And we're letting them know that if they bring us a deal. We will either pay them a referral fee or we'll kick them a little percentage of equity in the property in perpetuity. And so now we're creating benefit and we have all these people out there, including residential wholesalers, residential brokers, residential um, real estate agents, and uh, people who aren't familiar with commercial real estate, but come across commercial deals all the time and they just don't know what to do with them. So they usually discard those leads. And what we've what we've done is we've, we have told them, hey, we'll pay you a commission or we'll... Um, We'll uh, give you some equity in the deal. And now we've created value where now there are thousands of bird dogs out there that are looking for deals and we are top of mind. I'm not the biggest owner in in Cleveland, Ohio or Charleston, South Carolina, but I have a heavier presence than most. And I'm usually top of mind for anybody who comes across some sort of apartment building deal. And, um, but you gotta be out there. You gotta be telling people that you're buying property. I've been telling people I'm buying apartment buildings for four years consistently every single week on social media and through my email list and all these different things so there's definitely deals out there and you just got to be creative think about like uh, how about googling apartment buildings in your area looking for the ones with the worst reviews and then calling on them right typically that means the owner's not taking care of the property uh, which means their occupancy is probably down which means they can't cover their their operating expenses or their debt service and they're probably pretty motivated you know there's there's a uh, Motivators in real estate—they um, say the four Ds: death, disease, divorce, disaster. You know, I mean, you can go down to Panama City, Florida, and there's deals all over down there if you're willing to go in and put the value add in, right? A lot of people from the hurricane that got hit a couple years ago—what uh, was it, last? Was it last year? No, it was like uh, about a year and a half ago. They—they—they got these insurance checks, and now their buildings are shells. And if somebody's willing to come in and build those out, guess what? There's some opportunity there. There's somebody who inherited a property from their great grandpa that they want nothing to do with, right? This is somebody who's a ballet dancer in New York city, and they don't want to be a landlord. They just want the cash and they're willing to sell the property at at a discount in order to um, just have the cash sooner than later and not be dragged through the mud. And it's, it's kind of counterintuitive to people like us because We're always so finance and money centric, right? In all of our thought processes, and we're always thinking about how do we get the most money whenever we sell an asset, but there's a lot of other people who just don't care and and they have bigger headaches or bigger problems or bigger issues that they'd rather solve. And the money is secondary to that. Um, I bought bought a property a couple of years ago from a, a couple going through a divorce that could not settle and finalize their divorce until they liquidated all their assets. They were motivated, right? So those people are out there every single, like all over n- every single marketplace. Um, you just got to find them. You got to find them before the brokers do.
1: Yeah, and it, it reminds me, I work for a syndication group here in New York City, and you, pro- you know New York City real estate a little bit and the rent mm-hmm. stabilization stuff and how those laws just changed and everything. Anyway, we bought or we're, we're in the process. to have two buildings in contract. One of them is it, they've owned it for 60 years or something. And the husband, the wife thinks the husband's going to pass away in the next couple months. And she's like, look, I just want to get rid of it because I want to see this thing. I want him to see this thing come full circle. Mm-hmm. Right. I want I want him to to be able to see the sale and know that everything's OK. And then the other one that you mentioned is is getting the building passed down and inheritance after somebody dies and a younger person getting it and saying, look, I don't I don't want to deal with this. Right. I don't know how yep. to operate it. I, especially here in New York with the rent stabilization laws, like I I can't figure it out. It's too challenging. I like, I just want to sell it. So I I totally agree with you there. I want to ask you about something that you seem to do pretty well because you buy all over, you have 3,700 units, right? How do you, how does somebody get comfortable? How do you get comfortable with buying out of, out of market or out of the place where your primary residence is? Do you have a team built up in each of these areas? Do you just constantly visit them? Do you just ensure that there's a good management company in place? How do you, Gain confidence over that buying out of out of state.
0: Good question. Um, And 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 on that, there's we always have multiple layers in place. Um, I didn't buy out of state initially. I bought in my own backyard. I bought a lot in Cleveland, Ohio, and then uh, because I lived in Charleston, I had some connections down there. I had some resources and some really really good operating partners that were in there that just needed access to capital. Or a balance sheet and a little bit of, of more the administrative side taken care of. And so that's how I initially got into investing out of state. I had a good buddy in Georgia and he said, Hey man, if you'll bring 300 grand to this deal and help sponsor the loan, I'll give you X percentage of it. And that's what I ended up doing. And so that got me in. And then I realized, holy cow, like these out of state ones, it forces you to think at a different level, meaning I'm not, if it's in my own backyard, then my team, it's easier to just drive to the property, you know, and it's easier to do those, those mule type of activities versus if you're buying out of state, it forces you to be more of a magician and more of a business owner and put better systems and better people and better proper uh, uh, processes and metrics in place to measure all of that and manage all of it appropriately. And so, um, one of the things that we do is we always need somebody who's local to the project as our boots on the ground partner. And they're a, a joint venture partner. They're only compensated based on the performance of the property. So we always have somebody within at least an hour, maybe two hours of the property to ensure that if uh, a lender comes down and wants to walk the building, they go walk them. If uh, we have an insurance claim and then we have to meet an adjuster, they go and meet the adjuster. It's somebody who is, is competent, who understands business and, and uh, can think at a higher level and problem solve at a higher level. So we always have that. We have, you know, our, our buildings are all 100 units or bigger, so we we always have a, an on-site property manager and on-site maintenance personnel as well. So we layer the the that would be the the most uh, day-to-day operational uh, at the base level, right? And then we have right. the local joint venture partner kind of overseeing them. We also have. Uh, a management company, third party management company, typically, um, sometimes it's in-house. Sometimes we have third party management, but, um, if we had third party management, they'd be involved as well. And they're kind of handling in case the prop, the, the onsite manager doesn't do their job. They're filling in the gap while they're hiring somebody else or taking care of the payroll type stuff and, uh, the financing and all that. And then my team in Cleveland, which is where we're headquartered out of. My team here would we hop on phone calls with the management company, the JV partner, and the on-site property manager every Monday, and we go through all the metrics. And for about thirty minutes, we we call every single one of our properties and uh, and run through all the metrics on on each one of those properties. And then day two, I get an update, which, meaning Tuesday each week, I get an update of where we are and everything. And we can I, I can meet with my team for an hour or two hours and run through everything to make sure that it's uh you it, know the needle's moving forward, right? Things are on time, things are on budget, and um, you know, yeah. going the direction that we need to be going in. So it's multiple layers and it's it's again, man, it's been a lot of learning curves in that process too. But because we have a few people who um, are very accountable and are only compensated based on the performance of the property, it, it makes it more um, incentivized for them to pay attention and, and make sure that the property is performing at the uh, the rate we want it to.
1: Sure. No, it's a great answer because I think it's something that people are concerned about. And, you know, especially people that may live in a, in a city like New York or LA or Boston or DC that's expensive and they feel like maybe they can't find something in their area, you know, are they comfortable buying in a place like you know south carolina right where we're, they're yep. far away anyway
0: and, so and, and you- what i would say is this Clark, because i just bought 700 units almost two years ago from some some wall street guys in new york and these guys are making five million bucks a year on wall street and they're uh they don't know what to do with their money they need some depreciation and they went and bought 700 units in uh, uh in georgia right outside of atlanta And here's what they didn't do. They didn't have a local joint venture partner. They didn't have, they didn't interview multiple management companies and know the right questions to ask. They, they thought that because they hear about real estate and they read about real estate, that it could be a passive investment that they could be completely passive where they could just write a check, give somebody a management contract and everything would be taken care of. And that's like you and me going into a restaurant. And because we eat in a restaurant, we think we can operate one. (laughs) No, two totally different things. Right. And, and these guys ended up, uh, getting burned by the management company. They didn't have somebody to pay attention to the property. They got so salty over losing money on the property that w- they wouldn't reinvest. So you know what happens then. You go into this negative spiral of not being able to turn units, occupancy drops, crime increases, and uh, you can't cover your debt service, you can't cover your operating expenses, and all these things end up happening. They ended up dropping to about 40% occupancy, and somebody then who knows what they're doing, like me, comes in, and we made them an offer. I bought 700 units uh, in June of 2018. Yeah, June of 2018 for – um. For ten million bucks, you know, fifteen thousand dollars wow. per unit, but I had to put another fifteen grand of per unit in, and there was another five thousand dollars per unit essentially of like holding costs and uh, uh, reserve funds and that. So, but we're all in for thirty-five thousand unit. These things will appraise. We're going through the refinance process right now, and it's looking like they're going to appraise for around seventy thousand dollars a unit. So we're in at fifty cents on the dollar on those projects, and. That's somebody who's smart. That's somebody who's a multimillionaire in their business. But they realized that if they kept on focusing on apartment buildings, they were going to take their eye off the ball in their primary business and lose that income as well. So they had to just drop it and let go. And a lot of the properties I buy are from smart entrepreneurs um, who just got into another business, and they were not focused. They didn't have a joint venture partner, and they just thought that they could uh, give it to a management company, and, and uh, the management company would look out for that, their yeah. best interest. Not always the
1: case. Right. Wow. So how do you raise money for your deals, Tim? Is it, is it syndication? Is it institutional money? And then do you 1031 them after or what's kind of your structure there?
0: It'll be interesting to get your take on this because, uh, you're, you're a traditional syndication guy, right? Yeah. So, uh, I talked to a lot of New York guys and they, uh, This is very different because I, again, man, I I never read a book on this stuff. I never, uh, learned how to do traditional syndication. So I just did it the same way that I did single family. And here's the difference in my model. I don't buy anything at retail price. I always buy at wholesale price. I'm always all in for 65 cents on the dollar. As we talked about before, my model is to stabilize the property in 12 to 24 months, depending on how heavy of a lift it is. And then we turn around, we refinance it. And when we refinance it, we go to 70% loan to value loan and we pay back uh, our investors their, their initial capital contribution and we pay off the whatever the, the bridge financing or the acquisition loan is. And so my model is this. It's called the Burr method in single family. It's buy, renovate, rent, refinance. And then we just repeat, right? Rinse and repeat. And we do it over and over and over again. And so m- my investors are only in, like their money's only invested for typically 12 to 18, let's say 18 months on average. We average 15 to 18 months. And so even though I'm buying distressed properties, it's very predictable for me of what the capital cost is going to be on that money because it's such a short time frame. So if I'm gonna borrow a million dollars, I don't i don't I don't fully agree with traditional syndication for value add deals. I think if you're buying something stabilized, that's amazing. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense because you're not, you know, the operators not taking on all this effort, and all this work in order to find off market deals, spending the money, spending the time sifting through four hundred deals a month in order to buy one or two of them, which is what we do. and then and then dedicating the next year and a half of their life to making sure that this thing, you know uh again meets the meets the budget meets the timeline so totally agree you you know i i I don't like the idea that investors i've seen people in traditional syndications who invested in traditional syndications and they i'm invested in one right now it's been two years that i invested my money and i've never seen one dime back right because because they're going through the value add. and just uh, hey they tell me it's moving along but I, i i like the belief of seeing actual money and then the other thing is investors like a predictable return. And then they also like having some equity upside in the deal. And so I've realized that and I've created kind of a hybrid of it. And, um, I don't take acquisition fees. I don't take asset management fees. I don't take capital management fees. I don't take, you know, fundraising fees. I don't take capital events fees or anything like that. I only get paid when the investors get their money back. So I make zero money until the property refinances and then the investors get paid back. The difference is the investors make 10% fixed return on their investment pref return, regardless of the property's performance while their money's invested. So if they invest a million bucks, they, they get hundred thousand dollars a year for a year and a half. It'd be, you know, 150,000 dollars. It's a good respectable return. They get that money back when we refinance, then they keep 20% of the deal in perpetuity. Even with all their money off the table, they have 20% of cash flows, 20% of the equity that's still in the property, 20% of depreciation, 20% of everything. Future sales proceeds, everything. For for me and the joint venture partners, we keep 80% of the deal. But again, we don't nickel and diamond on fees, and we only get paid. And we're we're again in the boat, rowing in the same direction as the investors. It's just more aligned of a vision. But we also have a bunch of, uh, have more equity incentive because of that. So when you talk to somebody who's familiar with traditional syndication, which is completely the opposite, right? The operator gets 20% ownership and the investors get 80%, but the operator is getting fees and the, the investors only getting paid based on the, the performance of the property. It's a little bit different and it's hard to do that. The other thing is my, my investors are only in for 18 months versus five to 10 years in a traditional syndication. So I can, although it's only 20%, I can roll them into three or four different deals over that same timeframe. And they're really back at the 80%. And we don't have to sell the property. In order to get their capital back, they actually have equity and all these things more diversified and, and and they have equity and they can build long-term wealth versus more of the transactional stuff of having to sell an apartment building and retrade it every five, seven years. So it's just, it's just different. It depends on the type of deal you're buying. It depends on the type of uh, market you're buying in. And, um, you know, and how stabilized the property is. So it's just, it's different, right? It works really, really well for my investors. It works well for us and everybody, uh, makes a really good return, but it's a heavy lift as well.
1: Yeah. No, it's really interesting. It's almost like a hard money loan up front. Right. And then just a little upside on the back end because yeah. they're getting so it it's back like so hard, quickly. Exactly.
0: Kind of like that, but it's still tax advantaged. It's not taxed. Like it's still taxes as a pref payment. So they actually don't pay uh, taxes on their, on their prep payment until the property sells. If it ever sells, right. Uh, the refi proceeds that they get are non-taxable altogether. The cash flow that they get is offset heavily by depreciation. And then any other equity, you know, if we buy a $10 million building and we refinance it at 7 million bucks, there's still, you know, $3 million of equity in that. And they have, they're entitled 20% of that. So their net worth increases on paper by 600 grand. And that grows every month. We make a mortgage payment and over time as the property appreciates. And, uh, and that, whenever the property does sell, is only taxed at long-term capital gains. So it's still tax advantaged. They can still get a predictable return. They still have upside equity in the deal. And you know, it's it's predictable and their money turns every 18 months. So if they want to roll it forward, great, but they're not committed for five or ten years. It's just it's just different. Tim,
2: as you've been kind of building this business, what what are the bottlenecks typically? Is it finding the deal? Is it raising the capital? Is it finding the management company?
0: Well, I I mean, you, you mentioned the three things that when somebody asks me or says, Hey, I want to get involved in real estate, what should I focus on? I said, listen, there's only three things that matter in real estate. Number one is finding deals. Number two is finding money. And number three is running operations. You know, that's the three things that you just mentioned. And so everything that I do, uh, encompasses those three activities. And I have a director of acquisitions who oversees all of our acquisitions and finding of deals. I have a a chief investment officer who oversees all the fundraising SEC documentation. He's an attorney in house attorney for us and handles everything there. And then I have, um, you know, my COO, my chief operating officer who runs all the operations and has a massive team under him as well. And so, My, I heard Dan Gilbert say this, the highest and use highest and best use of his time, he said, were the things that cannot be quantified. And I thought, man, that actually makes a lot of sense because I can't quantify what I do because I'm not really the engine that runs the business. Those three guys are the engines that run my business, but I'm the fuel that runs those engines. So what I do is marketing. You know, what you guys are doing, you guys are doing an amazing job having a podcast, uh, building rapport with your audience and building credibility with your audience, building that trust with your audience. And I'm sure you guys have people who reach out and say, I want to sell a deal to you. I want to buy a deal from you. I want to invest in projects with you on a joint venture or pay you to mentor me or one of these different things. And. I've realized that that those three buckets, I need somebody who's a point person for each one of those. And if I can go out and be on podcasts or uh share information and, and content on social media and do some of the education type stuff, then naturally deal flow, money flow, and uh joint venture partners and um uh um operators end up coming to us and wanting to partner up or or get involved in our our projects somehow, but it's not quanti- it's not quantifiable you know like i don't know maybe maybe you and I end up doing a deal you know maybe uh who knows but without being on podcasts or being active on social media, it's very hard to quantify like how much deal flow and money flow and, and everything could come. So um, I I focus on the marketing efforts and that funnels deal flow, money flow and operations to my team. I would say, going back to your original question, sorry for going on a tangent there, uh, the biggest bottleneck in our business is, you know, I mean, I mean, we always want things to go faster, right? We always want uh, operations to move quicker, but the reality is it's, it's a certain, there's a science and an art behind turning value added buildings into performing high income producing assets, you know? And so we always want it to go faster. I always want it to go smoother. Um, that probably the human element is the biggest, uh, um, uh, bottleneck for us of just incentivizing people and realizing that not everybody's incentivized by money or equity. And, um, kind of the human resources is, is really the toughest part for me at least because I hate being an adult babysitter, but it's it's a necessary part of the business. Like totally. it's human. Re- I have a, I have an HR guy who's like on uh, on retainer now, just because I don't want to deal with it. I don't want my time, my team dealing with it. So he's the one who's, you know, going through and, and helping out with setting up metrics and all these different things now and, and helping things run more efficiently.
2: Yeah. It makes sense. So Tim, where do you kind of go from here? You got a great net worth, you're young. You got a great business what's kind of the plan for the future
0: uh well I, my goal is to hit a billion dollars in assets i mean i don't uh, you know everything's taken care of financially but that's just one of those one of those mindset type things i want to get up to a billion dollars over the next couple of years i think i can do it by the end of 2021 uh we have a bunch of stuff that's in the pipeline right now it's really really good good things going on so a billion dollars in assets is a short-term goal and then it, I've, I've realized that really finance is the industry that that commands and directs all other industries and my next goal is because I understand the operational side of things and I have the team in place and the resources and connections and um the 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 knowledge and the skill set on the operational side but we also understand the business and the finance side uh, you know I think w- we could really bring a lot of value to people who are buying apartment buildings on the finance side if we can go raise the money and then offer the mentorship and things it's a way that we can get involved in more deals and and then We can help other people get involved in deals that they couldn't have gotten into uh, initially and still protect our investors and protect our own capital and our own balance sheet because we're so active in uh, uh, the operational side as well. So uh, I think the next thing, the next step is kind of almost automating and franchising kind of uh, apartment building investing and developing a big fund. I want to get the fund up to a billion dollars and deploy it and buy property and invest in, in commercial assets all over the country with great operators and, um, and offer that mentorship and, and guidance in that process. And, um, I think that's, that's kind of the next thing. And then, um, I'm also working on a children's book series. Uh, it's not launched yet it's called little legacy library and um it's all about the the personal development and thought principles that uh that I've adopted from reading all the classical personal development books out there think and grow rich and how to win friends and influence people and those things and so uh we're we're releasing all those books over the next couple of months and i i'm really like that's that's more of a feeds the soul kind of a thing and making an impact kind of a thing for me and i'm i'm excited about that too
1: yeah yeah. Well, good for you. So we've taken enough of your time. Let me just wrap up here with a couple rapid fire uh, questions that we normally ask. What's the most expensive car you've ever purchased?
0: <laughs> I, uh, I believe in buying assets and not liabilities. So I just bought a $42,000 two-year-old used Mercedes GLS 450 for my wife. Um, but I bought it from my buddy I, again, this goes back to the whole <laughs> never pay retail. buy always buy wholesale. And I bought it from my buddy, who, who's got one of the largest used car dealerships in in Ohio, and he uh, he got this eighty thousand dollars car two years old for me for all in forty two thousand dollars with extended warranty and everything. So I could turn oh, around nice. I could sell it right now for fifty five thousand dollars. <laughs>
1: hmm. Okay, besides real estate, what items or experiences
0: are we spending more money on to you? I love travel. My brother lives in Europe. Uh, right now, I love experiencing new cultures. I, I like experiential type stuff, um, and, and I like doing it with awesome people, with entrepreneurs and people who have similar big mindsets. And um, you know, I I, I go yeah. out. I'll give you an example. I, I spent thirty thousand dollars on an eight-day vacation in in December because we rented this mega yacht uh, with a couple other entrepreneurs. We were just on it for a few days, hanging out and talking high level principles and it's opened up so many doors and so many thoughts and and ideas and, and opportunities for me uh, since then. So I like doing stuff like that. Okay. How
1: old were you when you hit your first million? Do you remember?
0: Uh 29. Okay. Uh, I assume you have
1: never used a financial advisor. I
0: I have one for my IRA and that kind of stuff, but I don't I don't listen to anything he says. Okay. <laughs> books, books are uh, <laughs> books are tools. What's been, what are your been your favorite book? Uh 12 Pillars by Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn's one of the he's like the forefather of, of personal development and was Tony Robbins mentor. And he's got a simple book, hundred pages. It's called 12 pillars, very profound principles in that book. And, um, it's an easy read. Yeah. Okay. Range of household income through your life. <laughs> I, I had $25,000 in credit card debt and 80 bucks in my bank account. in in August of 2012, uh, I was making $20,000 a year, $25,000 a year, but blowing all of it. So, um, I've, I've gone from, uh, from as little as $20,000 a year up to, uh, several million. Okay. Household spending. Do you have any idea annually? Um, I, so it, it's always been about a hundred thousand dollars. we we keep it pretty, pretty stable. Um, I just bought a beach house in Charleston, South Carolina. So that just tripled my, my, spending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm at about $300,000, uh, $350,000 annually. OK. And then lastly, is is in relation to
1: what you do, what does happiness mean for you or what does it mean to be happy or fulfilled in your life?
0: a great question and i uh i i I ask a lot of people who are much wiser than me what that means to them as well and you know when when i think of happiness i think about going to europe and sitting in a cafe and sitting there and talking to my dad about life you know talking to my brothers about life and and uh sitting there talking with other entrepreneurs about business and um you know how to how to pursue and be the best you can possibly be in all aspects of your life, not just in the finance side, but also in relationships and being the best dad, the best uh, husband and, uh, you know, ha- having good physical health and all these different things. And and I, I don't think balance is is truly, can, can truly be met, but I think harmony can be. I think you'll always lead with one or two aspects of life, uh, but that doesn't mean you need to neglect all the other things. And so, you know, trying to live a harmonious life and know that, that I'm I'm really living a life that sets an amazing example uh, for others of what an exceptional life can look like, you know, and, and I like, like for me, what, what inspires and drives me and makes me happy is somebody being like, you know what, if this guy can do if this kid from, from Cleveland, Ohio can have this, have this kind of success and do this thing at, at the age of 34 years old and build up, like, I know if he can do it, I know I can do it, you know, and that giving people inspiration really makes me happy, you know, and, and nice. hearing those stories of, of, uh, of inspiration and uh, breathing some life and and getting people motivated on uh living their best life that's that's what really uh makes me feel good awesome so tim where can people find you or hear more about what you're doing yeah I'm, I'm really active on on facebook connect with me on on social media facebook instagram um and my my website's legacywealthholdings.com you're welcome to reach out to me there and um i put a lot of a lot of free content on social media and my website so uh anything that that you guys want to know about and or more about my my business model or anything like that, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer any questions and you know, it's me and my team. So uh, if there's any way that I can help other people and inspire other people, please don't, don't hesitate to reach out.
1: Awesome. Thanks again. Tim Brass net worth about 30 million, 3,700 units uh, and and more to come in the future. Thank you so much for coming on and and spending your time with us. Really appreciate it. Clark, Chase, appreciate you guys. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.